Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Lila Corwin Berman, who teaches at Temple University, here to talk about her new book, Metropolitan Jews, Politics, Race, and Religion in Postwar Detroit, published this year by the University of Chicago Press. Lila, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Hi, thanks, Jason. I'm glad to have you. So let's jump right in. Uh, in modern times, Jews have been sort of the consummate urban dwellers. Is that right? Why have Jews been so attracted to cities? Yeah, you know, it, it's a curious and interesting question. And it was really what compelled me to explore this topic. Um, and what I talk about in the book is that, you know, certainly there's no natural reason that Jews have to be urban dwellers. It's not that Jews are necessarily more city-like than any other group of people, but that the intersection of um, different historical forces have made cities attractive for Jews. And I think that a lot of those forces really came together in the Enlightenment um, when cities with their density, with the um, different kinds of people, the, the sort of diversity that existed in them, um, really played the host for all sorts of experiments in political organization, in what it meant to be part of a public Right. That could pull into it lots of different kinds of people and embrace different kinds of people, sort of the the, some of the basic ideas of liberalism and universalism. Um, And that these were places then that cities were places that on a kind of intellectual level um, were home to the the kind of experimentation of a broader notion of a public and and who could participate in that public. Um, And that. Cities also became, by the 19th century, really the the economic centers of European society. And for folks who were not involved in agriculture um, at the same level as as other groups of people, Jews found that they were able to have um, a, a chance to participate in industrialization, different kinds of economic uh, industries, such as garment industry, um, in cities. And so I think that economic forces also made cities attractive for people who did not have a history of agriculture and land-based work. Um, and that those kinds of patterns, both the, the sort of ideology and, and political philosophy of a public and the economic opportunities in cities um, continued in the United States when Jews immigrated to the United States, really to drive Jews towards cities and toward believing that cities were the best places to be Jewish, that they offered the most opportunities and the most protection, both of being part of a broader, diverse public and also protection for a kind of privacy. Um, In the book, I talk about a sociologist in the early 20th century named Lewis Worth, who wrote about ghettos and Jews. And after he wrote his famous book in 1928 called The Ghetto, he wrote an article called Urbanism as a Way of Life. And there's lots of flaws with this article from the late 1930s. But I think he gets certain things right about the ways that cities allow both a level of anonymity. So 
So one can dip into all sorts of different identities without um, feeling as if one is constantly being watched. But they also provide separate kinds of spaces for private collective life. And I think that 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 kind of tension between wanting to be part of something bigger where one was not always just perceived as Jewish and wanting to have spaces that were um, securely and and comfortably Jewish um, were also continue to attract Jews to cities. What is the spatial turn and how did it uh, stimulate your thinking? So when I started this book, I was on a fellowship at the University of Michigan. It was actually the first year that the Frankel Center had its um, fellowship programs. And the theme was Jews in the city. Um, and it's not surprising, I suppose, that this is really where the book got started. Um, and it was really in the context of that group of fellows that I started thinking much more about space um, than I ever had. And reading some of the more theoretical work, um, you know, Soja and Lefebvre and some of the folks who were talking about how important it was to think about how space affects um, human interaction, but also folks who were thinking about, well, how do we have to think about the space in which history and historical transformations happen? Um, and so I think the what people call the spatial turn really started as a, a sort of literary concept to think about the physical spaces in which um, moods and motivations are set, and also to think about the relationship between quote unquote real space and imagined space and and how um, you know kind of conceptual space and perceptual space are always intersecting such that the space we believe we live in that is you know real space is so affected by the stories we tell about that space right and the ideas we have about it by the kind of you know conceptual um, and so I think that you know to me this was such a compelling sort of framework for thinking about um, historical change, because my first book had really been about language and the changes in language that Jews in America use to describe themselves. Um, and, you know, I, I guess maybe we're all supposed to love every word we've ever written, but one of the things I felt very critical of in that first book, speaking of Jews, was that it was sort of disembodied from space, right? That, you know, it was mm -hmm. these thinkers and these rabbis, these intellectuals and these rabbis um, but one didn't really have a sense of like, you know, what were they seeing out of their front window or out of their kitchen window? And how did that affect how they were thinking about being Jewish? Um, and so I was really interested in, in thinking about the spaces that Jews lived in in the United States and how much Jews grappling with identity also corresponded with the shifting places that they lived in, right? And how you tell different stories about yourself from different spaces, from different vantage points. When you look out your window and you see different things. In your mind, has there been sufficient uh, conversation between Jewish history and urban history? Um, no, I don't think so. I, you know, I find it such an interesting question. So when I started this project, um, because I had not read the full literature of, of urban history. And, you know, as I said, my first book really did not come out of an urban history training. I, you know, the, one of the first things I had to do is really give myself that training and, and become well-versed in as an urbanist. And I would sit there with a pencil in hand. This is like something, you know, maybe one's grandmother would do. 
and read these books about, especially New York City, right, which is sort of the, the consummate subject of, of U.S. urban history, and just circle the names of people who sounded Jewish, right? Um, and, I, you know, I realize this is almost laughable, but it was so interesting as I was reading um, urban history from, you know, dealing with periods from the progressive era into the 1970s, how many Jews appeared as important urban planners, Right. As folks who are involved, um, you know, in in zoning kind of regulations and fights as some of the lawyers involved in making urban change um, later on as some of the you know private interests and, and philanthropists and entrepreneurs um, and how you know these these characters appeared in urban histories. But their their Jewishness um, sometimes was mentioned. Right. Because it was an interesting biographical detail. But it wasn't approached as an analytical category. Um, and that to me was, I don't know if it was exactly surprising, but it was perplexing because, you know, for some of the reasons that I talked about at the beginning of our conversation, um, it seemed to me that Jews had a particular reason to care about Jews, uh, excuse me, to care about cities and the fate of cities. Um, and that nothing was really made of this in most of the urban history um, that I was reading. And, you know, and, and one can make a lot or a little of this. Many of the folks who are writing some of the really important urban histories were themselves Jewish. And that continues to, to be the case. Um, and so, you know, I think that Jewishness is in the history and in the historiography. But I don't think that there has been a systematic effort to think through Jewishness as an analytical category on the level that, you know, certainly class or race um, is really grappled with. And there's the expectation or gender that one can't do good urban history without grappling with those categories. So let's talk a little bit about Detroit. Why Detroit? Uh, is it representative of the urban experience? Um, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily representative of the urban experience. I think that's probably um, too loaded. Um, but Detroit attracted me for a few reasons. Um, the first is that in thinking about the history and the historiography on white flight, which really essentially is the subject matter of the book, um, Detroit, because of Tom Segrew's work, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, which came out in the late 90s, um, and then a few other books that have really been important in the white flight literature, Detroit emerges as a kind of poster child that historians have used to think through the politics and the economics, really the political economy of white flight, um, because in part because it's not New York City, right? So it's not um, freighted with the kind of exceptionalism that New York City might be. Um, and because in, in a very simplistic demographic way, it really went from being a white city to a black city quite rapidly. And that mapped upon its deindustrialization um, and it shared the fate of many Rust Belt cities. So I think that Detroit ends up being, you know, as an anthropologist might say, good to think with. Um, and, you know, to me, it was also compelling, probably for some of the same reasons that, um, you know, there are coffee table photography books that show the ruins of Detroit and what some people refer to as kind of the ruin porn of Detroit, um, because its, it's economic collapse was so 
uh, profound. And that city was so shaped by the movement of people and capital away from it and by neglect of the people and the capital and various kinds of capital that stayed within it. Um, and that at the time that I was writing the book, there was a lot of attention to whether or not there might be a renaissance or a revival in the city. Um, and so it, it, you know, for that reason as well, it was, it was really interesting to think with. Mm-hmm. So, so what is the standard story of, of white flight and suburbanization and the decline of the city? And how does your book sort of ask us to rethink some of those issues? And maybe to give us a little preview, tell us what is Jewish metropolitan urbanism? <laughs> okay, well, so the, the standard story um, that is told, and I don't think it's incorrect, about white flight is that um, a number of different forces that were really set in motion well before World War II um, led many white people to um, feel as if it made sense to leave cities after World War II, in part because of um, the practices of the federal government being involved in incentivizing or subsidizing certain kinds of behaviors, especially through tax breaks and different kinds of changes in tax code, um, and that the government um, really provided all sorts of incentives for builders of suburbs and for people who were moving to suburbs through its lending practices um, for people to leave cities. Um, And that as well, this fit into a kind of consumerist um, model in which the the idea of having one's own home and a a garage and a backyard, um, all of these became sort of goals in achieving the American dream. Um, And you know, different interpretations as to why the government and different different forces were so invested in people leaving cities. Um, you know, in some some renderings, cities were seen as places that were dangerous, where radicalism or revolution could be fomented, um, that that suburbs could be controlled better, depending on how one wants to read that history. But that all these different forces came together after the Second World War and led and in, and really um, opened the doors of suburbanization for white people in particular and, and for groups that were at that point, quote unquote, becoming white. Um, and so the general story is that as that movement happens to the suburbs, the people who are leaving cities also tend to make a political move more toward the right and that you have the rise of um, a kind of modern post-World War II conservatism that leads to Nixon, that leads to Reagan, that leads to support for disinvestment in cities that is undergirded by um, a, a kind of racism that's not necessarily on the individual level, but is a sort of systemic racism notions that cities are places where poor people and where non-white people live and that they're not safe, controlled spaces. Um, what I was interested in is how do you explain a group that is moving through time and space um, it, with patterns totally similar to those folks who are, are documented in most white flight histories, um, but a group that retains its liberalism, right? That, that does not, on the whole, move toward um, the right in its voting patterns, that rhetorically continues to support the agenda of civil rights and other kinds of liberal protections, 
um, that were important in, in the post-war era. And so what my book really asks people to think about is how a, a kind of ongoing sense of attachment to urbanism, whether one lives in a city or not, comes to define a very different political sensibility for folks who leave cities than folks who, who leave and attach themselves to these more conservative agendas. Um, and I use the term metropolitan urbanism as a way of talking about um, how Jews and I think other liberal groups sort of extend the boundaries of the city, politically speaking, um, into the suburbs to um, announce themselves as being able to retain a, a kind of urban politics, even when they're living outside of the city. Um, and that there are all sorts of contradictions in this, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're all contradictory in our beliefs and behaviors. And, and this certainly is no different, you know, to announce that one can feel deeply connected to the people and the spaces of cities and yet leave those people and leave those spaces is bound to mire one in certain contradictions. And that's absolutely the case. Um, but it's, it's a different political narrative than the one that has been told about whites leaving cities. And there's other important work that recently has come out that also really talks about liberalism in the suburbs. Um, and this has really been a force that had in, in most histories been really neglected, right? Historians have gotten very interested in tracing conservatism in the cities and how different kinds of private property concerns, um, concerns about education had manifested themselves through support for conservative agenda um, and had really neglected the fact that liberalism also was a strong force in delimiting what happens in suburbs, especially in those suburbs that became part of what I would call a kind of metropolitan ideal. Mm -hmm. You wrote an article in 2007 called American Jews and the Ambivalence of Middle Classness. Is ambivalence about success and moving to the suburbs related to this story? Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, and some of this is, it's hard to empirically trace, right? Because some of it is on the level of sensibility. And that was really one of the biggest challenges I found of writing the book. And that's where that article, which I wrote before the book, was really useful because I was interested in thinking about, um, well, how did Jews understand their movement into the middle class, especially because that's not, you know, you, you can actually put on a map, one's movement from the city to the suburbs, right? And maps are invented fictions in all sorts of ways. But there's a, a certain kind of empirical reality to that. Whereas class and middle classness especially is something um, that that tends to be fuzzier and, and more difficult to, to define. Um, and so how did you think about what it meant to be middle class? And, and, you know, certainly what were the privileges of that, but also what were the costs of it? Um, and I found all sorts of from from various corners, from very religious figures saying that this was going to be the worst thing that could happen to Jews because it was a force of assimilation to very politically radical Jewish thinkers who were saying that this was, you know, showing Jews just becoming entirely conformist to the ways of American capitalism. So all sorts of levels of ambivalence about the losses that would happen if Jews understood themselves to be um, essentially middle class. But all of this really um, was a kind of thinking through 
of a reality that was driven by the fact that most Jews truly saw that that was success, right? That was a way of fitting into being American, to be middle class, and that it would protect them. It would protect their group. It would allow them to um, aggregate the kinds of assets to build new synagogues and to provide a sense of security and stability for their children. Um, and so, you know, I think that all of those kinds of ambivalences and tensions about middle classness were also replicated in certain ambivalences and tensions about suburbanization. Um, and that they really were only pronounced on the back of the fact that, that these things were actually becoming a real possibility for Jews and that most Jews, um, even if they were articulating their concerns about moving to the suburbs or about becoming middle class, were also very much so participating in those movements or participating in that class structure. And that's where those kinds of contradictions that I was talking about before also become really clear. And it's not that people are unaware of that, you know, that, that they are talking about their concerns with middle classness from, you know, very well-appointed living rooms from the suburbs, um, from their own ability to kind of have the privilege to reflect on whether or not this privilege is good for them. There's a turning point towards the end of the book in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, tell us what happens then and what has happened since 2010. Good. Okay. So, right. One of the um, major shifts that starts to happen in in the book is that Whereas Jews in the 1940s and 1950s really understood their political identities in Detroit as being neighborhood based. And I spend a fair amount of time talking about those neighborhoods and the culture of the neighborhoods and what it meant to be able to call a neighborhood Jewish, which, by the way, didn't necessarily mean that over 50 percent of the people living in that neighborhood were Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, there's a shift that starts to happen first through identifying with the city more generally as a whole and then moving toward this kind of metropolitan consciousness. And you can even, in a very basic way, trace that shift in the names of the Jewish organizations, the central Jewish organizations. So sometime in the 60s, many Jewish organizations, from synagogues to the Federation um, to different chapters of social justice and social welfare organizations, add the word metropolitan to their name, right, because they're extending their purview to the Detroit metropolitan era area. So in the 1970s, um, as that shift has really become very clear and, and demographically, most Jews in Detroit live now outside of the city. Um, there's also a shift toward the, the kind of privatization of how Jews interact with the city, right? That they are more likely to interact with the city through their own private business interests or through different philanthropic interests, and that there's more skepticism of the public role of the city, of the electoral process. And, you know, there's a very clear cut reason that Jews themselves are no longer voting. Um, they're no longer that public, that electorate. Um, and they're concerned about how the public process is working to protect the city. They've also been part of a movement that has moved tax dollars out of the city. So the tax overhead is lower. Um, and so their efforts to reform or to um, control, one might say, the city happen more through private kinds of channels. Um, and this, of course, is on the heels of the 1967 urban uprising, the riots, 
Um, and there's different kinds of redevelopment organizations, all philanthropic and, and private business entities set up to remake the city, to rebuild the city. Um, and this is something, by the way, that's echoed in lots of American cities at this time in the 70s, um, the real privatization of urban politics where private entities come to have a role that really rivals the role of, of public governance, especially over certain kinds of spaces. Um, New York City is, is definitely a case where this happens. Um, and so by the 70s and 80s, there's both the privatization of how Jews are dealing with their relationship with Detroit, but there's also clearly a growing kind of alienation between Jews and the city. Um, and part of this is just a generational thing, that at this point, many of the folks who, who are Jewish who live in the suburbs don't feel a really firsthand connection to the city. Um, many of them no longer even work in the city. Many jobs have fled the city in part because of governmental subsidies to be outside of the city. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a sense that, first of all, you know, maybe these private efforts aren't even going to work and maybe the public doesn't want, quote unquote, doesn't want those, those private efforts, um, you know, to, to make a difference to its life. So, so there's this sense, I think, and I think that for people who grew up in Detroit in the late 70s and the 80s into the 90s, um, you know, that maybe the city was just completely lost um, and that public or private efforts weren't going to make a difference. And the, the shift then that I found and, that, you know, as I was writing the book and I would tell people I was writing this book, people who live in Detroit, they would say, well, you've got to write about what's happening now. And this was like 2010. 2011, and people would point to these different pockets of Jewish activism in the city. And some people would even go so far as to say, well, the Jews are going back to Detroit. Never mind that most of these Jews who are going back to Detroit had never themselves actually lived in Detroit. And never mind that this was like a tiny, tiny portion of the Jewish population that was actually even, you know, contemplating moving into the city. Um, but people uh, on a rhetorical level, I think, were interested in um, understanding how it was that the city that had felt like, you know, it, it was in its very end days for Jews sense of having relationship to it, how the city could now be important to especially younger Jewish people. And so in the epilogue of the book, I traced a number of the ways that young Jews have started to interact with the city again, some living in the city, some getting involved in, you know, sort of grassroots neighborhood based organizing, um, some getting involved in entrepreneurial experiments. Um, real estate is very cheap in the city. So, you know, somebody can have a loft and open a little company and test something out for, for very little capital. Um, and I talk about how also on a grander level, some investors are seeing Detroit as a worthwhile risk, right? Again, in part because it's a really low investment and it, and whatever it returns could exceed that investment relatively quickly. And so, um, you know, the, the best sort of high profile case of this is Dan Gilbert's Quicken Loans, which moved into Detroit from its home in, in the suburbs in Southfield um, right around the time when I was, you know, doing the research of this book. And, made a kind of commitment to the downtown city. And I talk a lot in the epilogue 
about different ways of understanding this commitment. You know, are people treating Detroit as if it was an empty space that Jews can and other white folks can can come into and do as they will? Um, are they respecting the fact that there's been, you know, people who are continuously living and struggling in this city? Um, and there's a lot of tension there. Mm hmm. How does the story change the way we think about Jewish politics or Jews and liberalism? Well, you know, one of the things that um, I found really interesting in writing this book was thinking through just how much liberalism is um, not a stable force. Right. So mm -hmm. and I think anybody who has studied the history of American politics or um you know, even sort of modern politics, not just in the United States, confronts the fact that these terms that we use, conservatism, liberalism, progressivism, um, they're totally moving targets, right? And so they're often created or stabilized um, in the eye either of somebody from the outside who wants to denigrate a group of people and say that their, their ideas are lesser or from someone from the inside who thinks that they can kind of use the terminology as a ballast for organizing politically or making some kind of change. Um, and so, you know, the fact that Jews themselves continue to characterize themselves as liberal and that people from the outside also continue to perceive Jews as liberal um, does not indicate a kind of stable sense of what liberal is. And one of the things that really was striking to me how in the late 60s and the 70s, Jewish liberalism really embraced the kind of sense of, of private and entrepreneurial efforts to improve the public good, right? That it, it wasn't just the government or, or kind of interventionist state that was going to make the public and was going to protect the public. Um, which would have been kind of a, a New Deal liberalism that really focused on what the state could do. Although more and more scholarship is talking about how even in the New Deal, there were a lot of kind of private entities that were working alongside the state. Um, but that a, a real shift to believing that the private sector and, and the quote unquote nonprofit sector as well should really be empowered by the state to protect people and to determine the public good. Um, and that the public needed the private in order to thrive and in order to survive. Um, and I think that this became really an important part, an, an important conviction of Jewish liberalism, that um, as Jews became more successful, became more middle class and upper middle class, and you know some became spectacularly wealthy and became high power philanthropists, um, it made more sense to make change through the private modes than through public modes, right? And that, um, you know, so becoming an elected official maybe was less of an attractive way to um, ensure the public good, whatever that might be, than becoming um, the head of a really big foundation or philanthropy or becoming the head of a business that could create certain kinds of corporate policies or, or whatever it might be. And so I think that this was a real shift in how Jews thought about their liberalism. Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I don't think it means that they pulled away from believing that the state should provide 
some levels of social welfare, but I think that it means that they became more um, invested in what what the private sector could do for the public. Lila, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Metropolitan Jews, Politics, Race, and Religion in Post-War Detroit. The author is Lila Corwin Berman. Thanks. Thank you for... Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, newbooksinjewishstudies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.